Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation that I had with Shireen Edassam. Shireen is many things. She is an entrepreneur, a seasoned media executive, and a transformational speaker. She has produced films, original television series, and specials. Um, she's a proud member of the LGBTQIA community, and she founded OMLTV, which is a popular platform dedicated to streaming quality queer female video content. Um, she's also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone and Forbes. And today I'm really here to talk to her about her new book, Free to Be. Um, and so without further ado, here is my conversation with Shireen. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of The Wholehearted Healer. I'm your host, Dr. Avine Banish, and I'm so grateful that you're here. Today, I'm excited to talk to Shireen Edassam. Shireen, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. So you are a busy and very successful woman, um, and I love to hear about your background, doing all these amazing things, having great success out in the world, and then your book has... Uh, more of a spiritual bent. And so I love to sort of dive in to begin to get to know you, sort of your background and how you went from there to here. Yep. Um, and continuing to evolve. Absolutely. So some people say entrepreneur, media executive, turn spiritual teacher, and I don't feel like I've turned. You know, it's, it's really an evolution and I'm not ceasing to do what I've been doing, though I do it at a much higher um, level now. So I'm not in the weeds as much, but I, um, you know, it's interesting that you ask about the evolution because I, I went to uh, I went to an artsy fartsy um, high school in Seattle, uh, which I love, called the Northwest School. It's still there, and it's become a boarding school. And I got accepted into the theater department there, and loved it. And between that and a community theater, I got a lot of experience, not just acting, but being on set building sets, designing sets, lighting sets, um, and such. So I was really immersed in that world. And I really wanted, I knew that I wanted to be in theater and film and loved acting. And this was early 90s. And my dad was a little concerned, at least at the time, that about a... Iranian young woman girl in Hollywood, you know? And so he, 
and I used to love film festivals and and such. And he basically at the time I loved uh, the likes of Woody Allen, Ingmar Bergman, um, and and the likes Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't like Woody Allen the same way now, but yeah. he actually, uh, my dad and I had a father daughter conversation when I was 16, I graduated when I was 17 and he said, well, why don't you do what Woody Allen does, um, star in your films and, and also direct them. And a light went off and I was like, oh, okay, I will study film. <laughs> and so therefore I went into film and um, working on indie films, also starring in them. And I got my degree in film production, minor in broadcasting. And I produced my first feature film, which by the way, is the very first feature film ever streamed on the web. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Yes. Um, it's called Walls of Sand. Um, and I, um, yeah, something to tell the grandkids. So I did that. And then it was probably the late 90s. I realized that at the time there wasn't much money in independent filmmaking or in documentaries. So I started going this, the commercial route. And um, I got into broadcast television and ran a few shows for uh, Discovery and Scripps Networks, um, like for Fine Living and Travel Channel, History Channel, and so forth. And then really got into the digital online realm and started doing more agency work as well and running campaigns and such. And it was right around that time, I also was pitching a TV series that was sort of like a lesbian madman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, we took it to MIPCOM, uh, which is a huge conference convention in Cannes. And um, I was researching to see if there was any series like it. And at the time, Google al- algorithms weren't what they are now. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, uh, when I punched in lesbian film, lesbian television, lesbian series, it was porn, porn, porn. And I was like, oh, my God, there should just be one site where there's quality lesbian content. Um, and so I started OML and the timing was perfect because it took off in many, many ways. And it's been a passion project of mine. And I have a small uh, team on it now. And we do all sorts of wonderful things with that. But all to say that I went through a major breakup at the end of 2013, and I began doing some really deep soul searching. And it's interesting because on the outside, I had everything that everyone strives for, right? I had the houses, I had the money in the bank, I had the beautiful partner, I had the kids, all of it. And when we broke up, I felt like I had nothing, like I was in a abyss with no plan B. And so I really started reevaluating. And I remember 
friends saying, oh, well, you know, new chapter and so on. And I'm like, I don't want to write a new chapter. I want a whole new book. And so I really dove deep into what that was. And I had no idea how I would go about it. And I I had a motto in the early days, uh, which was better than this. And the thought was that if I felt just a tiny bit better than I was feeling the moment before, that was progress. And so I kind of fumbled my way. I call it bobbing for spiritual apples <laughs> um, and really found my way. And it took about six years. And I can talk more about that. But after that, I truly felt like I reinvented myself from the inside out and realized that everything that I went through could be a lot more succinct. So I basically shrunk six years into six weeks. I mean, it's not always that neat and clean, but it is pretty concise and very practical. So that's kind of how I came about it. And the book is really meant to be a practical guide. Yeah, and one of the things that I would love to do is to dispel or redefine the word spirituality, because when you say spirituality, it gets mixed in with religion, and mm -hmm. it's also in the realm of woo-woo. And what I went through is anything but woo-woo, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's dark, it's dirty, it's hard. And you don't really, you don't have to go somewhere else for it. You don't have to go on mountaintop. You don't have to go to ashram. And therefore I wrote the book and here I am. That's a very long answer to your question, but that's kind of the, the evolution of it. Oh, and I want to add one last thing. Sure. Had I known at a young age that public speaking was an option, I most likely would have gone down that road. So I kind of feel like I've made a full circle. I basically have wanted from a very young age to be in discussion with people. And right now I am shifting toward having greater conversations about the transformation of us individually and globally. Beautiful. I, I love so much of what you shared. Um, I love that you even started out saying that, you know, I think a lot of times when people hear the word spiritual teacher, or I, I agree that people conflate it with um, something other, something outside of themselves. And so um, I get really excited when I hear people at the top of their field who um, are not abandoning what they know, um, all they know to uh, to do something other, to be spiritual. And so, because I, I think the world in all fields needs awake people who have gone through what sounds to me like a dark night of the soul journey as you've been on, and then can mentor people um, while still being amazing at what they do in all fields. I um did you ever read The Untethered Soul? Yes, I love that book. So Michael Singer, the author, um, 
was, and I didn't know this at the time when I read it, but he was going through a highly contentious lawsuit yes. with his company at the time. And that really served as an inspiration for me. Like at the time that he was the most troubled, he found freedom. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that is spiritual awakening awareness. So yes, I I you know I fashion myself a lot um, like uh, Jen Sincero or a Mark Manson, who are content creators who had an aha moment or a series of aha moments and shared it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just had a chance to look at, um, so you write, it sounds like you contribute all over the place to Rolling Stone, to Forbes, just to name a few, but I love your articles, you know, and even how, like some of them that I, that really spoke to me, you wrote one called shifting perspective, identity versus career, and then let's stop calling it work-life balance. And so again, I feel as if you're approaching, um, you know, I, I think all of us having this moment of inspiration or aha are um, what traditions tradition sort of Eastern religions would call householders. Like we're not meant to be in a cave. We are, our spirituality is relationship, is partners and children and coworkers. And how can we live in this world and make a difference? And it really feels like that's what your message is touching upon. Um, like so practical um, yet elevated way of living. Yeah, it's the same, you know, it's interesting because no one thinks twice when they say, I want to get fit or I want to lose weight. So what do you do there? Everybody knows you have to possibly eat better. Exercise is a must. So if you tell somebody to go to the gym and work out regularly and eat, they won't think you're crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But then people want spiritual freedom. People want, frankly, mental clarity and mental health. And I truly believe the mental health and spiritual health go hand in hand. And I could talk more about that. But then as soon as you start talking about spirituality, the practice of I mean, it, it, you you mentioned Buddhism. Buddhists call anyone practicing Buddhism practitioners. Why? Because it's in the practice. Mm-hmm. So the same way that one goes to the gym and and works out and sees results if they do it continuously, and very different than if they go once a month. <laughs> It's the same with spirituality. If you visit it and go to a retreat, you know, every six months or think you should go to an ashram or, you know, uh, drink pressed juices at yoga and and believe that you're spiritual, it's not quite it, (laughs) you know? So it really has to be integrated into one's daily life and it could be done so fairly seamlessly like you don't it, you could you could practice spiritual awareness as you're doing the dishes or taking the kids to school or at work 
So I think that needs to shift. And I'm going to add that I believe that in the next five to 10 years, spiritual health will have its day the way that mental health is having its day now. So five or 10 years ago, it was taboo to say, I'm feeling depressed or I'm having mental issues. Whereas in now people freely talk about therapy, you have the likes of Prince Harry who are you know, promoting mental health, celebrities, especially athletes who are taking mental health breaks. Mm-hmm. And I think that spiritual health will be the same in, in future years as it gets destigmatized and redefined. And hopefully I'll play a part in that. That sounds, I, I hope so too. Um, you know, you talk about things like green juice and, um, and all of these sort of pseudo, th- these practices that make people feel better. Um, in your book, I know you talk about spiritual bypassing. Can you maybe define that for people, give some examples of that? Yeah. So, um, and it's super tricky. I mean, I, I love all those things that I mentioned. I mm-hmm. love retreats. I love pressed juices. I love yoga. Um, I'm going to spirit rock, which is one of my top happy places uh, this weekend for a commuter retreat, which I am really looking forward to. So I love all of those things. It's just that all of those added up do not create a comprehensive or effective spiritual practice. It's just here and there. So there's two different things. What I've t- what I'm talking about is really spiritual window shopping. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of dabbling in it, which could be a form of spiritual bypassing. Because if you think that you're, you've done spirituality because you've gone away for a weekend and then you're back into your daily mode and stressed out and overwhelmed and all of that, that would be spiritual bypassing. But I, I, that type of activity, I like to call spiritual window shopping. And I did that for many, many years, thinking that I'm doing spirituality. Um, forgot your question. <laughs> I um, Examples kind of of spiritual oh. bypassing. So spiritual bypassing is more subtle and... There's really a fine line. So some examples of spiritual bypassing, we're just talking about it, like toxic positivity, which we hear a lot about now, is a form of gaslighting yourself and and others who might be in pain. So somebody comes to you and says, my husband just left me. And you'll be like, oh, look on the brighter side. Oh, wasn't he an a-hole anyway? And oh my God, other fish in the sea, you know? Um, Anything that is in that realm, good vibes only. Okay, yeah, gorgeous. You know, we we all want to have a great day. Life just doesn't roll out that way. Mm -hmm. So instead of minimizing it and pretending it's not there, 
it's a matter of acknowledging it and and offering support, even when you don't know quite what to say and what to do. That's two very, very different things. So um, so there's that. There is spiritual bypassing. If you follow a guru mindlessly, blindly, and that's not to say that there aren't opportunities to deep dive with a guru, but if you are dedicating yourself to someone and not open to any other thoughts, that is not only a form of spiritual bypassing because you are allowing the other person to do your process for you, and it becomes a doctrine. It's also cultish. <laughs> so, um, and there are many, many other examples of spiritual bypassing, which I mentioned in the book. Well, and it sounds like, you know, if you've been on a journey for six years, um, right, just as so many of us have been, there have been, I love the idea of this book because you're distilling your experience into something that perhaps someone could avoid some of those painful experiences. Um, it's, it kind of feels streamlined. So, so do you want to share, you know, without, we'll talk about how to get the book and, but without sharing, you know, really all that's in the book, someone who's listening, who says, you know, this, she's really speaking to me. She resonates. Um, where does someone even begin if they're in that sort of Either they're going through something really painful like you did when you experienced that breakup or they have just maybe, you know, that idea of work-life balance. They're just so burned out at work. They feel as if they've sort of lost themselves or like we were talking before we started recording, they're at a moment of big shift, right? Their, Their kids are getting ready to leave the house. I think all of these moments are moments of that potential abyss, maybe too strong of a word, but that sense of like, well, the bottom is gone a little bit and I don't even know how to get my footing. Yeah. Um, a very good question. So I think that the best place to start is clearing one's canvas, clearing the runway. I went to a workshop and the person leading it said that there's no way a airplane can take off or land if there are things in the runway, but Mm -hmm. that's how we operate, right? Just kind of like trying to make our way through it and, and hoping that we'll take off (laughs) or land. Well, and oftentimes I feel like when there's one coping mechanism that's familiar to me and many people is when things get hard, you actually put more things on your runway to avoid, to avoid that sense of potential. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. So, so, You know, and it's interesting because a lot of people say, you know, follow your bliss as if everybody knows what their bliss is. And, you know, like, okay, you're at a crossroads now. You can now recreate yourself and do what you want to do. But nobody really says how, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write a book that was super practical and step-by-step on how. So the first part of the book 
is all about clearing your canvas, clearing the runway. And it's in three parts. So the first part is three weeks. The second part is three weeks. And it's meant to be read chronologically because I start with brain brain detox. And I do so because the brain is the biggest culprit. The brain really, I feel, should be like a CFO um, and we assign it as CEO Mm -hmm. responsibility. And I think that that is one of the biggest starting points is to clear one's mind and there's various ways, activities, and I can give some examples so that we're aware that we are having thoughts rather than being a slave to our thoughts, Mm -hmm. which is the definition of awareness. So there's a process to go through. And, you know, I I try not to make it cookie cutter in that uh, I think that people operate different. So I mentioned, you know, if you're such and such personality, you could do this. If you're such and such personality, you could do that. So first week is all about detoxing one's mind. And one of the biggest, biggest culprits, well, there's two culprits. One is what I call infoxication, which is content overload. And we're all overloaded with content. So how do you filter through all of that? And I spend a considerable amount of time talking about that. And then um, also being a slave to the amygdala. We are fearful creatures, and that presents a lot of anxiety and worry within us. And so how to deal with the amygdala when it's necessary and when you need to tell it to shut the F up. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of that. The second uh, week is all about detoxing the heart. And when people talk about following one's heart, and I think that's a misnomer, it should actually be following one's soul. Because truthfully, when you talk about the child within, that's the heart. It's super fickle all at once. I I refer to it as a little puppy, because all it wants is love and attention and acknowledgement. So treat it as such, you know, don't, don't relate to your heart from as if it was your mind. And I think people get that mixed up as well. So I talk a lot about how to take care of your heart. And week three is all about detoxing our body and not just the regular eat well, sleep well, uh, exercise, but really shifting our relationship with our body as the only vessel we have through this life. Mm-hmm. I call it our Uber ride through life. <laughs> so we got to treat it well. And it's not just a matter of taking care of it physically, but having a paradigm shift around it. 
So that's that's part one. And then once the canvas or the runway has been cleared, now what? Hopefully you are much closer to yourself, your soul. And once you've gotten truly in touch with your true self, your core, underneath all of the stuff that I mentioned, um, I'm a huge advocate of play. So um, week four is all about play. I believe in adult play. And I don't mean the kind of play that you one does in Vegas and has to leave in Vegas. Mm-hmm. But genuine, super innocent, unintentional play, whether it's swinging on a swing or skipping down the street. And I list many, many activities. My One of my go-to forms of play is dancing. I will dance spontaneously anytime I get stressed out. I'll just put on disco music and I'm out, you know. Love that. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, and there's different play um, character types and all of that, which I get into. Uh, week five is about um, uh, finding your higher self because a lot of people confuse the soul and spirit. So I define soul as what's uniquely yours and and your inner core Mm -hmm. which we disassociate with at a very very young age so this is our our steps back to reclaiming that core whereas in spirit is the all there is the the universe so the soul is uniquely yours the spirit is shared and i think people get that mixed up So week four is all about the dance between the soul and the spirit. And uh, week six is about redesigning, rewriting your life. And there's specific ways, like I use a Venn diagram (laughs) on how to do it. Because again, it's like, okay, rewrite your life, but how, right? So it's a step-by-step process in that. And hopefully that will have you where you want to be. And I, I feel that if people are already on a self-transformation path, that this book can serve as a really good reference and validation for many things that they probably already know and and possibly make things more practical and doable and for those who haven't done any real transformational work i think that it is a fantastic starter because it's a life journey, right? You can't read. I mean, there's no, I, I, there isn't one book that I've read and I've read quite a few books. It wasn't like I read Pema Chodron's when things fall apart and be like, okay, I got life now I'm doing it right. There's always, it's always an evolution. So hopefully this will play a part in people's evolution or get them started on a self-transformation journey. I love that. And, you know, um, books like Michael Singer's The Untethered Soul, which I've read multiple times, 
get something different out of it each time. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but it's nice. I think how you've laid it out, it is really nice. I've worked with people, clients for many years. And this idea of like, just your next right step when you're really upside down, sometimes it's just really nice to say, okay, this is how I'm going to begin. Right. Because when we're, when we're in that dark night or when we're in the dark and we're not sure, again, we've sort of lost our footing. Um, I really like how you lay that those, the first half of it out because, um, we are in a body and, uh, you know, again, that humanness, getting that sort of straight, getting the brain calmed down. Um, then I, I really feel that, you know, in, in terms of my own journey, um, my experiences, my aha moments have all been things that they're knowings. They're things that I remember, right? I think we come in knowing a lot of these things and we forget. And sometimes it just requires a pause or a, um, a stilling in order to just, it almost emerges. And we're like, oh, it was already, it was always there, but, but it was like, you, you know, you kind of mentioned the surface of the water was so choppy. I just, I couldn't hear it. I couldn't see it. And I think that it's also really important to have the distinction between mind, heart, body, soul, higher power, spirit, whatever you want to call it, because we mess it up. And I think that also creates obstacles. So if if the little puppy, your heart, needs attention and affection, you know, and, and your mind is trying to be all rational about it, it's it's not soothing it. It's not healing it. All it wants is comfort, you know, give it a blankie and a teddy bear and, and take care of it for however long it takes so that you don't feel that way anymore, you mm-hmm. know, or go see a friend or your therapist, whatever it is, you know, and, and the same with, with the body, you know, it's like the, the mind, the mind is so trippy. Um, but the, you know, there's so many things that we tell our body that is just so unkind yes, and, and, and untrue. So I think being able to be, you know, like, oh, I really feel like this is my heart speaking, you know, like, for example, I, I use an example in the book, which I can share here, you know, like if it was up to my heart, I, my, my kids' schools is, um, well, their middle school was uh, a little bit further, but now it's still a, a ways away. So I have to wake up at like quarter to six and then drive them an hour later. They hate it. I hate it. And if it was about my heart, all it would want to do is like be cozy in bed, right? And have somebody bring me coffee. Mm-hmm. But it's my commitment to them. And that is a, a soul-driven commitment which is what gets me out of bed and, and all of that. So if it was a matter of following my heart, I'd be like, mm, I'm going to be under the covers, <laughs> you know? So I think those are, it's very, very important to have the distinctions. And I think the, the soul and spirit connection is also super, super important to distinguish and, and, and understand because I think that there is magic in knowing the uniqueness of ourselves. 
that that we are a part of a greater whole, but that we are truly unique. You know, and there's there's magic in that. So it's a little bit like, you know, we were talking about how to pronounce our names before we got on. When I was younger, Avine, there weren't many where I was living and growing up. Um, and so it is, it does feel like you get to a point in life where you can really celebrate who you are rather than, you know, as a high schooler trying to fit in or, you know, peer pressure or so really relishing and reveling in the uniqueness of your being. And I think, I mean, you, you mentioned school and I, I have a lot of issues with um, the education system, um, which I won't get into here, but I, it still baffles me that they don't teach emotional intelligence in school at all. So it's not surprising to me that, you know, you get, you get a cookie cutter education for the most part, and they kind of want you to be learning and doing the same thing as everybody else. And yet they want you to be a individual. And it's not surprising to me that high schoolers, especially because they're teenagers, want to be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Because that is the norm. Whereas in if from an early age, it was celebrated, that our uniqueness was celebrated, I think it would be very, very different. But I'll get off my soapbox there. Hopefully one day. Um, I'm wondering with all of your background in media and you have this amazing message to share, do you ever see yourself making any, or maybe you already do any, you know, content for the screen with this, with this message? Funny that you said that. Um, so I actually, as um, we speak, I have a, um, finished a, um, uh, feature film. That's a thriller. And um, also in development for a series, um, a, a um, not a reality series, it's a docu-series of sorts that I'm very passionate about. So I am continuing to do that. But one of the TV series that is very dear to my heart that I am hoping will manifest after the book is out is a series about a group of people that go through a process together and um, and we follow them as they go through it. So rather than it being a competition with one another, mm -hmm. they, they basically battle themselves and their demons. And we witness all of it, the the good, the bad, the ugly. <laughs> so um, that is in the works and hopefully it'll come to fruition in, in the years to come. That's really exciting. So when does your book come out? Where can we find it? How can um, people learn from you? So all of my socials, including my website, are my first name and last name. And I'll link those in the show notes for sure. Yes. Um, the book can be found on a variety of platforms. Amazon, of course, would probably be the easiest. And 
what was the other question? Um, how can people learn from you? Are you teaching at all? Are you offering any? Um... So I am right now I'm taking a break from any sort of workshops just because we're ramping up for the launch of the book. Sure. But in June, the, the book is going to launch on June 20th. And super excited about it. And we have many things at play. After that, I am going to restart doing workshops on the six-week process. And you can find more information on my website about that. And I would love to have people join. Wonderful. Shereen, it was so lovely to talk to you. I really I love your groundedness. I love your practicality with all of all of this. And I really feel it's going to resonate with, with a large number of people who are listening. So I want to say thank you for your time and for sharing with us. Thank you for having me and thank you for your time.